really didn't want to live it. Deep down inside, there are desires to be something and do something different. But you live under the weight, or you know somebody, you've watched them live under the weight of alcohol addiction, drug addiction, gambling addiction. And I've sat across the table from way too many people. I've got family members and relatives that I can tell uh, stories for the rest of the day about people whose lives have been dominated for years, just years of sadness and grief. You know, I'm, I'm 42 years old, and I easily know people who have lived their whole lives. They've, they have as many years of bondage in these categories as I have of drawing breath. They have people who have, have lived for half of the existence of my life that I've known, that I've watched, and you look at, the, at, the, at where they are in their life now and you see wasted years. The tragedy of wasted years of a life that's been controlled by something else, some behavior pattern in their life. If you look around America, the things that make the headlines and cause prolific amounts of damage in personal lives... They move from uh, the, the alcohol addiction, drug addiction, into the categories of, of gluttony, gluttony and obesity. I mean, in our country, there is a, a rampant, I just saw a, a, one of those political cartoons in the paper or magazine, uh, about a guy who's sitting at a bar, he's got a cigarette in one hand, he's got a big, huge sandwich in another, and a beer in front of him, and he looks he's like he's as big as a house. And his statement across the bar is, what's up with the cost of health care? Well, you know, in our country, uh, we live in a land where people just have a really hard time saying no. Just, I mean, let's face it. I mean, you can call some of these things whatever you want, but there's an issue of we just don't want to say no to some things. But down deep inside, if you ask anybody who's, who's bought one of the umpteen thousands of diet plans that are available out there, something in you wants to say no, right? But I just can't seem to say no. Because I'm controlled by something besides what I want to do and be is controlling my life. There's a statistic that was up in the video about pornography and its effect on people's lives. And how many people battle with pornography. And, and we live in a time frame where that battle is what it is, not because lust is new in the human heart but because access to the images that provoke lust are more ready than anything at any time in history. You can click on the Internet. You can drive down and see a billboard. You can see something on TV. You can get stuff in the mail. There's so many private ways. So I don't even know if you'll ever really know the statistics of how many people's lives are controlled and dominated by the issues of pornography. Because it's not something that people are going to easily confess publicly. You're not going to sign on to be a statistic in that category. And these, these issues, they spill into other areas of our lives. I don't know anybody who's struggled with an addiction to alcohol or a private life of pornography that doesn't develop some real relational problems in their life. Because you have to lie to live those lives. And one of the things, if you ever come to me for counseling, the one thing that one of the first things I'll cover with you is the issue of lying. Because it's your lying that enables you to keep doing it. If you make a commitment, which is just a commitment like you make when you walk with Christ, you commit to the truth. 
Commit to be an honest person. If you make a commitment to that, to that anytime there's sin in categories like this, you're going to be disclosing. You're going to be honest about it. Well, you're going to cut the legs out of that sin because every time you sin in the category, you have to reveal it. But we don't do that. And so we stay in these controlling bondages and they spill over into our relationships. But, but let me move this subject away from the category of the headlines into, I think, in your outline, what I called the less sensational but just as insidious jail cells. Because for some of us right now, we're safe. You know, It's like, well, I'm not having a real battle with some of those issues. Right? I'm, I'm doing okay with some of those things right now. But I put a little list together there, and at some point as we move through the series, we'll probably unpack a good bit of all these. What about the prison of pride floating around and motivating you and controlling and seizing your life? The jail cell of comparison. You're very busy comparing yourself with others and how you measure up to them. Whether your talent is as talented as theirs. Whether you receive as much attention as they do. Whether you're built the same way they are. Whether you're as attractive as they are. Whether your people skills are as effective as theirs are. And you know you walk into a room immediately the the prison, that, that cell in your mind of comparison begins to... I mean, your, your mind, it's going. And you are comparing how you look, how you interact, where you're good, where that other person isn't. And your mind becomes busy. Concepts like the fear of man, excessive shyness, not wanting to be around people, the, the busy thoughts of, if I go to covenant group... Oh, it's just a, I just don't like, I don't like to talk about myself. I don't like to, to be in a setting where those kinds of discussions are taking place. Well, why not? Why not? Why, why does your stomach migrate to your throat in certain settings? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You're going to be in a certain setting. Something might be asked of you. You, you might have to respond. Oh, and fear just grows like mold up your throat. You know what I'm talking about? Why is that? Your God would like you to be free to be in any and every situation. Free to be there. I'm free to go. I'm free not to go. Free to interact with this set of people. I'm free to interact with that one. But yet fear grabs you. And next thing you know, you're trying to find every excuse under the sun why I can't go. Well, you know, we won't be able to come because of this or that. or Controlling things in our lives that we face on a regular basis. Oppressive Opinions. There are, are some here this morning that you, you get under the weight of what you think so-and-so might be thinking of you. If you make a decision, you put your decision into the crosshairs of, of you know, quite honestly, the imaginary thoughts of that other person, whoever that other person is. And everybody think for a moment. I don't know why it is that we promote certain people to the role of king. I don't know why we do that. But for some reason in our lives, we have to bounce our thoughts, our decisions, what we're doing off of the king, whoever that, or the queen, whoever that person is. And, and when we make a decision or we did something and we think, should we have done that? Well, what will so-and-so have thought? And next thing you know, our mind is under the weight of this control. And, and, and there's not a sense of freedom. There's not a sense of liberation. There's not a sense of joy in our lives. Because we're under the oppression 
of somebody's opinions in our lives. Now listen, this is where more where most of us live. I think there's a, there's a great commonality. There are many who wrestle with addictions or lusts in their lives. And those are very real, very dominant. But I think most of us would probably tell a story, story uh, similar to mine. I, by the grace of God, I, I don't know why. And again, if, you, if you'll see jail cells as jail cells and you won't glamorize one over the other, which, by the way, I hope we're learning to do a whole lot better than that. We think, you know, if somebody's here struggling with pornography. Whew, they need to be rooted out and dealt with. I mean, those people in our midst, can you imagine? Well, you know, God feels the same way about pride. Matter of fact, I think God's more clear about pride than he is about pornography. I don't find the Bible saying God opposes the lustful. He opposes the proud. So sometimes we need to get educated about our categories of favorite sins and non-favorite sins. But, you know, for me, my story of jail cells and, and influential controlling behavior in my own life would not have been in the category of addictions. Uh, by the grace of God, I, I began to do drugs and drink at a very young age, probably 11 or 12. And by the grace of God, it never became an addictive, controlling element in my life. And, and I can't explain why, except for the grace of God. I was exposed to pornography. I, I must have been 11 or 12, about the same time period, about the same group of people as well. And I can't tell you why that did not become a controlling, dominating element in my life. Um, I, I haven't had any issues with obesity, although I am gaining weight rapidly in the last couple of years. But my issues of control would have been more in the category of pride. It took me a while to figure out that a lot of my fear, which was very controlling, was pride-based. It took me years to understand that. And I, and I think in terms of your own quest for freedom, uh, you may find the thing that's real loud is rooted somewhere else. And if you're going to kill the issue in your life, you're going to have to trace the root and kill the root. You can't just keep trimming the fruit. It'll just grow back because it's rooted in something else. But I mean, let me just tell you about my, a little bit about my own story of, of of both the bondage of these thoughts as well as, and I'm not going to go into a great deal of the, the story of the freedom yet in this category that the Lord made sure and brought. Because I want to make sure, and along the way here, we're going to have some folks share testimonies, that all of us realize, no matter how glamorous or powerful or controlling we make a jail cell out, God's power is greater. And he does intend that it not become a lifelong dominating issue in our lives. He intends that to be the case. And if that's not your story, it needs to become your story. It's why we're doing this series. So there can be fruit that really is freedom in our lives. But I can think back in my life. I can think back to being in, in grade school. And I went to a small private school. And it was easy to establish a reputation when you're in a small private school. So as far as I could tell, you know, I was class president. I was a uh, star athlete. I was, I was the guy who had to defend his reputation. I was the guy who supposedly could beat everybody up in class. Now, I don't know how that got started, but I was very eager to maintain it. But what it, what it meant was I was scared to death every day that somebody would try and knock me off my throne. 
Every day. I can remember going to school. And you'd have never known this. If you met me on the outside, I looked like I had it together. I was the cool guy. At least I was trying to be. I don't really know how cool I actually pulled it off. I can remember, I still remember driving through neighborhoods, and I'll see, you know, still don't see this too much anymore, but you see some kid 12 years old that just smoking a cigarette. And I think, that was me. You look like an idiot. <laughs> but you thought you looked so cool. You know, it's kind of like you're, you're holding something that looks like it's about a foot long. You know, you just need a little body. It's all skinny. and <laughs> But I thought I was cool. So I don't know, maybe these other categories, I just thought I was cool, and everybody else thought I was a geek. But... But in me, there was this fear of going to school and somebody new was going to show up. And he was going to be tougher than me. And he was going to figure out, this dude needs to get beat up. (laughs) And I was going to have to fight. And I didn't want to fight. I just wanted to enjoy the fact that I thought I could fight. I didn't want to have to fight. And, you know, so whether it was grade school and and, and those fears and controlling influences or, or athletics. I loved to play athletics. But, but, but I, I had something in me that controlled me that I, I had to play at a certain level. You know, I, I had to be the guy who started. I couldn't sit the bench. I had to be the quarterback. I, I, I couldn't just play guard. You know, I, I had to be the quarterback. I, well, of course, that presents the opportunity for somebody else to bump you off, to displace you. You don't measure up. So there was always this controlling mind process in me to try to impress, to try to be winning people over. That's a pain to live in that day in and day out in your life. And, you know, I'm going back to childhood because, you know, you grow up and you just you morph this stuff into adult versions of what it was when you were a child. And quite honestly, I bet many here today, if you'll really think and ask the Lord for some help and freedom, you'll find the issues that you are most wrestling with today, you were wrestling with them when you were 10 and 12 and 15. And they're still hanging around in your life. They just put on a different set of clothing. When I got saved as a teenager, really wasn't around many Christians when I got saved. So this, this pride and this desire to be the quarterback, the desire to be impressive, didn't really have an audience because I, I didn't know hardly any believers. But then when I went to college and I wanted to get involved in campus ministries, ah, it was, it was as though, and you guys will recognize this living through Katrina, it, it was the mold waiting for the right environment. When I got an audience in college, in the category of spirituality, all of a sudden now, my pride and desire to impress could grow prolifically. So now I got to live in the control of how, how impressive would I be to the college group? Would they look to me? I was an unknown, but I needed to make a name for myself now. I need, you know... So I'm I'm handling the Bible in order to impress. I'm memorizing Scripture, not because I'm delighted in God, but because I want to be able to quote Scripture, because quoting Scripture in this setting is impressive. I want to be able to have something to say about a topic, so I want to know stuff. I want to be able to counsel people. I want to be looked to as the problem solver guy. I want people to come to me. I want to stand in a group, and I want to pray the mother of all prayers. When we're done in our little circle, I want people with their eyes wide open thinking, wow, I've never heard anybody pray that way. Now, can I say this to you? Because God dealt, that season of my life was the season of God introducing me to my pride. 
and, and, and the control that it was in my life. I can remember, it was shortly after I began to attend Lakeview, 1983, I believe it was. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of Como's Furniture. You know where Como's Furniture is? Driving away from a meeting, sitting in the parking lot of Como's Furniture, with God having opened my eyes to my pride and how much of my activities was being motivated and controlled by it. How much of my good actions were all about me. All about advancing me. I mean, I was strategic. I, had grown, I was good. I, I had skill. I could put myself in the light of God's glory and, and you wouldn't notice that I used the back door and made it all about me. And I was there and you were staring at me, but I made you think you were staring at God the whole time. But man, when you were done, you were impressed with something about me. It took me years to acquire that kind of skill. But can you imagine... I had, to, I had to think about it. The, the weight of thinking and strategizing and conversing. How many, you know, some of you guys are like this. You have your own conversations with people before they occur. right? You've gone back and forth and you've prepared it. And then afterwards you've reviewed it. It's almost like you have play-by-play analysis going on. And I should have said that. And, and, and you just live in this torment of mentally having to be someone and impress somebody. It's enslavement to people. And that's what I lived in in my life. Until about 1983, when God jumped in in the midst of my tears, because God showed me this, and He showed me how much bigger it was in me, and I remember sitting in that parking lot and saying, God, I can't stand this anymore, but I feel like I can't do anything about it. I was seeing my motives everywhere. It's like God would show me at every turn. You know why you did that, huh? Oh, that was real impressive. You know why you did that? And it was everywhere. It's like I couldn't turn anywhere. It's like, oh, there I am. Oh, oh, oh. I started to hate myself. I couldn't get out of my own skin. Very controlling. But just, can you go with me to the place where you're you're living your life to impress others? And how controlling of an issue that becomes? See, I I didn't have the headline issues. But I know something about being enslaved. I know something about my life and my thoughts. Being controlled. And me having that influence in my life. You know, these jail cells in our lives begin to affect the everyday relationships and the everyday settings of our lives. However you're walking these issues out yourself, it's affecting your marriage. It's affecting how you parent your children. And begin to think that through a little bit. You get under the... You get under the oppression of opinions and something happens in your life. You do something in your life and you begin to imagine what the opinions are about somebody else, what they thought about what you did. And that sits on you like a weight. And in your mind you go back and forth and you fight with yourself about whether I should have done that, whether I shouldn't have done that, how it's being read by others. And wanting to undo it, wishing you could have improved it, thinking that through, thinking that through, but you have nagging little children pulling at your leg for attention eventually the response can easily become, stop it, get away. Why? Because you're very busy in your mind dealing with your issues. I want to ask for husbands and wives to nudge each other on this one, but how many of you guys have a problem with moodiness? Don't poke anybody here. Did I tell you moodiness is a jail cell? You don't get there by accident. Moodiness takes work. It takes cooperation. 
And, you know, and there are different people. People deal with life differently. But, but you, know, you know what it's like for yourself to kind of go inside yourself. Right? Some people just, you, you get, and think about how you get there. Think about what's controlling you that you begin to kind of gaze at your navel. It's all about you, what you did, what you didn't do, who you are, who am I now. I used to be this, and people are saying, I don't know. Everything's about you, and you're just controlled by that. Next thing you know, your navel sucks you in, and you're inside yourself. Well, well, while you're inside yourself, there's still people outside of you having to deal with you. So all your relationships are getting uh, infected and affected by the fact that you've been sucked inside yourself now. You've gone into your own little world. And God never intended for navels to be able to suck you in. But they do have that power, don't they? And what needs to happen is some freedom needs to come into our lives. Well, this morning... I want to touch the issues of freedom beginning with a deliverer. Freedom has to come to us. It takes a particular person. I put this headline in your outline. For man, in his depravity, and depravity is simply the doctrine that states that sin has touched every aspect of my life. Every aspect of my life has been touched by sin. None of it remained untouched. So, you know, this is not like rebuilding New Orleans where, well, you know, 80% of the city was flooded, but there's 20% that didn't get flooded. We, we can build from there. Now listen, apart from the gospel, that's what man believes about his condition. Man believes that he's 60%, 80% damaged. But see, but there's 20% good stuff in me that I can use to build and move forward. Welcome to every self-help book you've ever, ever read. Part of you is damaged, but part of you is good. And the part of you that's good needs to help the part of you that's damaged overcome it. That's not the Bible. It's absolutely not the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible hates that idea. If you're here and you're thinking, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear. You know, help me overcome my problems. I, I, I maybe need to ask you to make a radical departure from how you think help comes into your life. Radical departure. Found in this statement. From man and his depravity... Bondage needs more than just determination. It needs a deliverer. See, if I, if I pull Christ out of what everything I'm going to say this morning, I'm just up here hyping, come on, do better. Come on, you don't want to keep living that way anymore. All I've given to you is a, is a message that says, be more determined than you've ever been before. Well, that's, that's called self-help. That's why we get self-help books. That's not the gospel. In the gospel, and our freedom that's in the gospel needs a deliverer. It doesn't just need determination on our part. I want to ask this question. I want to poke around in our current thinking for a few moments. Are we listening to psychology or listening to Scripture? Are we listening to psychology? When I use the word psychology, I'm going to use it as a broad range of thought that really is, is man-generated versus the Scripture that is God-generated. So I'm going to use psychology in a broader sense than just the guys wearing the coats who are psychologists or psychiatrists. But the definition for psychology, if you look in your dictionary, says the study of the human mind and its functions. The study of the human mind and its functions. And I would, I would add to that is an organized approach to figuring out why life doesn't work right. That's what psychology is trying to do. No fault in that. Needed topic. Is everybody here in touch with the fact that life doesn't work right? 
Anybody here not know that? I mean, do we need to maybe re- go back and review anything here? Or does everybody know relationships don't work right? Our bodies don't work right? Our society doesn't work right? right? We're all watching the news, right? Life doesn't work right. Psychology comes along attempting to study and bring remedy to it. And at some point, I mean, you can go, psychology exists all the way back to philosophers. You know, Greek philosophers were the psychology of their day. And if you study human thought throughout the years, you'll find a number of things that, that people have always bought into. Whether it's they bought into the philosophers and they had followers and they had people who followed this particular philosopher and somebody who followed a different one. In our modern setting, we have men like uh, Sigmund Freud, who really is, would be known as the father of modern psychology, uh, Maslow and Young, and guys who studied human behavior with a desire to analyze why people do what they do and how to help them overcome the issues that are in human life. Now, we move from those guys which were more years ago and, and began an influential thought into our own lives and why we do what we do into the more modern, what we call pop psychology, popular psychology, uh, with the dawn of the media and all the programs that are out there, you, you kind of get the Dr. Laura's and the, the Dr. Phil show. Uh, you get people like that. And, you know, and you listen to some of these folks, and they do have some decent things to say. You know, I, I mean, Dr. Phil's, I haven't watched him much, but I've caught a couple of his acts. And uh, watching him interact, in some ways I kind of I like the way he kind of just bumps into stuff real hard. You know, just somebody's whining, doing some kind of problem, and you just kind of got that attitude about, well, you just need to stop doing that. Thank you. <laughs> I needed to hear That's exactly what I needed. Uh, but, you know, he does say that. Well, well, why don't you just quit being a doormat? Why don't you take responsibility? You know, and, and there's some rightness in that. But, you know, the, the key ingredient that miss, that's missing here, you know, that's, that's determination. Why don't you just get determined? Well, I don't know. Does that person... 50% damaged, 80% damaged, or 100% damaged? Because if they're 100% damaged, where are they going to get determination from to really be free? They're going to have to get it from somewhere else. Modern setting has produced a plethora of pharmacology in the realm of human behavior. The most research and proliferation of drugs these days is being done Basically, somebody's searching not for the fountain of youth, but for a happy pill. People trying to discover how to make people's behaviors stop being this and become this by just take two of these and you become this. And, and man is obsessed with that. This is the modern approach to psychology. David Powelson, who's a tremendous biblical counselor, offers these insights to us. It says, for about 10 years through the mid-1990s, wherever you turned in the counseling world, you heard that problems in living were caused by painful experiences of being used, misused, and abused by others. Unpleasant emotions and destructive behavior were based on a sense of woundedness and emptiness from bad relationships. Why do I think bad, feel bad, and act bad? Because I was abused. Those were the glory days of nurture, and thus the glory days of psychotherapy and support groups, right? Like you've been on planet Earth for a little while here, all that stuff, you know exactly what he's talking about. Then the world changed. 
That needy and hurting inner self, so marred by tragic experience, faded into the background. Along about the mid-1990s, everyone discovered that our genes, hormones, and brains cause problems in living. Our bodies, not our families, were dysfunctional. Brain chemistry and genetics became the significant cause of your personality, your proclivities, and your problems. A sunny or melancholy temperament, tendencies toward violence, drunkenness, overeating, laziness, distractibility, or shyness, choices for homosexuality or promiscuity. The action is now in your body. It's what you got from mom and dad, not what they did to you. Now, if you're not a student of modern psychology, you may not be aware that that's where the trend is now. But I think you probably are. I think you don't have to study real hard to notice that the emphasis has moved away from the environment that made you what you are to the nature that's in you that makes you what you are. But both of them are just simply attempts to address humanity is broken, and how do you fix him? What's the problem that's going on with man? Now, let me just say this. Why, why take issue with psychology? Um, I, I, I do that fairly often, and, and I, kinda, I really don't make an apology for it. I think biblically, we're called, biblically, I'm called to do this individually. You're called to do it individually. Any idea that comes along and offers itself as a solution to man's problem is competing with the gospel. The gospel is the remedy to man's problem. If there is any idea that can fix man apart from the gospel, then Christ died needlessly. So any idea out there that's going to tout that it can fix us, I'm going to look at it. And you should be looking at it too. And you should be looking at it through the lens of Scripture to see where does this measure up with what God has said. So I, I kind of, I'm trying to say this to be nice. I, I know I get crosshaired with some people because somewhere along the line, some sliver of psychology has touched your life in a way that you like. You like an idea. You like something. It, it presented a concept to explain your behavior in a way that, okay, well, this makes sense now. And I, I know why I'm doing that now. And, and then you come into church, and I jump up and down on top of it. And that thing was your friend, and I'm beating your friend up now. And so you, you want to walk out of here going, man, that guy, every once in a while, I just really can't stand him. Um, psychology is an attempt to study and remedy the brokenness of humanity. That's what it's trying to do. But along the way, psychology is going to make the ultimate mistake. It's going to misplace God in its equation. If you leave God out of the remedy, or perhaps even worse, if you put God in the remedy in an unbiblical way, you have not remedied the issue at all. Nor have you settled eternity in your heart. Right, one of the most famous, helpful psychological inventions was Alcoholics Anonymous. It became the launching pad for how to address controlling issues in people's lives. The 12-step program is probably second only to the Ten Commandments in, in what is touted as everybody knows it exists. But the 12-step program has a fatal flaw in it. It introduces a higher power that you get to define who he is. 
That's a problem. That's a huge problem. It's not a small problem. It's a huge problem. Because the Bible never allows us to define God for who we think He is. The Bible pronounces to us who God really is. And so if you, if you bring God into the equation, but you reassign who He is and you move Him to the left, you don't have a biblical solution to your problem. Don't, don't try and tell me the 12-step program is a Bible-based thing. It's not Bible-based if you get to redefine who God is. That's not the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible are we allowed to do that with God. And let me ask you this, why would you want to? Why would you want to take the only being who really knows you, really knows what's broken inside of you, and loves you, and really has the power to make a difference in your life? Why would you not want to know Him completely for who He is? So that He could touch your life and really set you free. Let me tell you one, one reason why you'd be attracted to do that. Because God's, God's way seems to go this way to get to the problem. When, you know, when it starts with repentance, you know, wait, I, wait, I don't want to be told I'm wrong. I, I don't want to start figuring out what's wrong about me. I want to go straight to getting free. That's, I just want to go straight to getting free. I'd rather hear somebody tell me it's because of the way my mom and dad raised me. I'd rather hear that. Wouldn't you rather hear that? I'd rather hear that they're jerks than that I'm a jerk. Did my parents sin against me? Listen, I was raised on the same planet with you. I got issues. My parents influenced my life. Did they fail me and let me down? Sure. They were human beings. Then when they were done sinning, did I then turn around and sin? Oh, well, I don't know if we want to go there. See, when you, when you meet Christ and your life, your life is a mess, and we say it's because of the environment that influenced us, at some point, I become responsible for my environment. And, and that would be a great reason why some folks would rather do this than do this. So we'd rather reinvent the, the pattern to freedom. Because God's pattern is going to make us responsible. And we'll, we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks here. But before I completely... I'm not, and I'm not completely throwing psychology out the window. Can psychology make accurate and even helpful observations? Yes, Absolutely. Can it help us better understand influences in our lives? Two major influences, uh, the reality that our personal history and environment do influence our life experience. Our personal history, your personal history here, influences your life experience. Who your parents were, how they raised you, how they related to you, the, the people circle that was in your life, the events that you've walked through, those are influential issues in your life. We don't ignore those, and we should not ignore those. You know, when I look back in my life and I see what, what shaped me to make me want to be a certain way, why was I responding to people the way I was? It'd be helpful for me to, to understand. What system of belief did I build around insecurity? Right? Some of us here this morning, you're here and you're just insecure. It might be wise for you to realize how you built that, because it's a belief system. That's the thing, well, I'm, I'm just insecure, I'm shy, I just don't... So I avoid groups of people. Well, somewhere along the line, you, you thought that was a remedy. It's not a remedy. It's encouraging it in your life. You're avoiding the very things that God would use to set you free from yourself. But along the way, you invented some means of dealing with life. It might be wise to figure that out. Why did that happen? Were there people that said things to you in your life? Did your parents say things and do things? Did people dear to you say things and do things? Did the environment that you were in 
Uh, I love David Powelson uses a term for schools. He calls it the chalkboard jungle. Man, kids can say some cruel stuff. I Meaning at a very early age in your life, you figure out who's in and who's not. You figure out why you're a nerd and why you don't fit in. And all of a sudden that gets in you in a certain way. And now, now you have this mountain to climb that, you know, biblically looking back, you, mean you look back at your life biblically and you realize, why did I let anybody tell me that was a mountain worth climbing? Why did I ever buy into the idea that if I wore designer clothing, I would really be somebody? And if I met my parents shopped at Kmart and I had to wear those clothes to school, that was horrible. And you realize some of us bought into that when we were kids. We didn't want to go to school because of that. We were controlled by that. Now, when you grow up, if you don't deal with that, it just puts on a different set of clothes when you get older. And you're still that way. It's just over some different issues. Similar, but different. Well, I won't deny that there's, there's historical issues. Uh, there are nature issues about us. The reality that our unique genetic makeup influences our life experience. It does. In this room, we're not all prone to the same things in the same way. And it's not because we were raised by different parents. I mean, if you want to check out the Collins family experiment that's going on in our home. You know, we have, we have a controlled environment. Same parents. Same approach, child after child. They have to deal with the same issues of sin and mom and dad. All of them are exposed to the same stuff. That's a controlled environment. But there are six variables in this experiment. And, and they are all very different. And, you know, I'd love to say, you know, honey, we've got to stop parenting each one of these kids differently. For goodness sake, they're all turning out different. Why are they that way? Why are some of them good at some things and not good at others? Great aptitude for math, not a great aptitude for math. We've got, we have right-handed, we have left-handed. You know, how, how did that happen? We didn't teach you to be left-handed. None of us are right-handed. All of us are right-handed. You know, why, why are these things in our kids the way that they are? If you meet my three-year-old, um, you will find one of the most polite individuals you've ever met. He's very polite. He's three years old. If you do something kind for him, he'll, he'll make sure he lets you know thank you. He takes interest in what's going on in your life. I had one of my girls went to the doctor this past week, had a doctor visit. When she walked back through the door, he went up and said, what did the doctor say? <laughs> I mean, he's three. And he's always... Not always, but he is, he is that way quite often. And, you know, I'd love, Gene and I would, would love to say, you know, with a, little, with a little right parenting, all of you can have children like that. <laughs> but then you would look at my, some of my other children and you'd wonder, wait, wait, what happened to that one and that one? You know, they, they don't even want to look at me. They look like they're scared to death of me. Um, because they're all different. And, I could, and as we try to parent our children, we identify... This one looks like it's going to struggle in these categories of issues. This one looks like he or she's going to struggle in these categories of issues. And they're very different issues. Same household, same parents, genetically different, sure. So do we believe that genetics and nature have something to do with our behavior? Yes, we do. Psychology is saying that if you have a genetic tendency in a behavioral category, then that's who you're going to be. The script is written for your life. That's who you are, because we've been able to find out today that genetically you kind of have this bent in you genetically. And what I find interesting is we have, we have AA and support groups for those who have the gene of alcohol. 
And on the other hand, if we have, if we have, if we have identified the gene of homosexuality, well, there's nobody telling those folks that that needs to stop and it needs to be controlled. In our society, we're telling those folks, well, that's who you are, and nobody should have a problem with that, and they should just keep doing that. Well, why aren't we just telling all the alcoholics, that's who you are. Drink all you want, man. That's who you are. It's how you're wired. Just drink yourself into oblivion. So we have some inconsistencies even in our society of how we're dealing with some of these things. But my question to us is, are we listening to psychology? Are we listening to Scripture? Why, why is man broken? Why doesn't he work? Why do we have the conflicts that we have? What's going on inside of us? And does the Bible explain any of this? What well, does? The Bible explains both environmental consequences to our behavior as well as the fact that the Bible explains why sin operates in us the way it does. Because it explains that we are, by nature, totally depraved. Sin has touched every aspect of our lives. It has touched our physical bodies. It has touched our gene pool. It has touched our mind. I know there's a big debate, brain scans and serotonin and how the electrical impulses fire in the brain. And when it fires a certain way, behavior patterns become this way. When it fires a different way, behavior, you know, listen, I don't know that, that that's really as understood as clearly as it's being portrayed, that it's understood. But even if it is, that doesn't, that's not new information for me. Because the Bible teaches me that sin touched every part of who I am. So if it interferes with the way my brain fires, and when my brain fires a certain way, I find myself drawn to certain patterns of behavior, okay, that sounds like the Bible to me. That's fine. So I haven't discovered anything that makes me say, should I reassess whether I trust the Bible or not? The Bible would have us say it's both nurture and nature, and God's truth has always taken both into account when it speaks to us. Always. Now let me move to this passage in Luke chapter 4, and I intentionally took a good bit of time this morning to make sure that none of us are going to sit through this series thinking, man, I went out of way to invite my so-and-so because they've been struggling with alcohol for years, and man, I'm so glad we're doing this series. And hopefully, I've spent some time purposefully for us to realize our issues of bondage and jail cells Though they may not be alcohol, there's a lot of us sitting in jail cells, aren't, aren't we? There's a lot of behavior that is, is controlling our lives that needs to get in front of us so that we can experience freedom the way God intended us to. Let me address for a second. God's awareness and care about your bondage. If you're here this morning and, and you have been wrestling through the frustrations of habits, not being not being able to overcome them, not being able to change, living in the fallout of those behavior patterns, broken relationships, debt issues, struggles just to feel good about your life, at some point, you're going to raise the question, God, where are you? You're going to wonder, God, do do you really even care about my life? All I know is my life is weighty, difficult, bitter, and your tendency will be to wonder, where is God? Well, this morning, I, I, I want to establish clearly in our hearts the mission that God is on concerning your freedom. Your freedom is not a small thing to God. Look in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. 
So then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If you want to find an enormous purpose statement for the ministry of Jesus Christ, you will find it in these verses. You'll find it elsewhere in scripture. This is not the only purpose statement. This would be the one that Jesus pronounced, inaugurating his ministry to man. And if you are like me, you're seeing liberty mentioned in here quite a bit. You're seeing freedom highlighted quite a bit. And what's interesting about this is, is this quote from Isaiah is actually two different passages in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 58 and it's also Isaiah 61. And so if you can imagine, as the scroll is unrolled... You know, scrolls were, these were handwritten scrolls, so we're not, we're not talking type that's about this big. Right? These are handwritten scrolls. So I imagine there's some distance between Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. And so Jesus takes the scrolls, as would be customary, and reads a passage. But then he turns to another section, and he grabs from that passage as well. And he puts these two passages together. It's as though there wasn't... Quite enough being said in Isaiah 61 about freedom that he wanted to grab one more concept of freedom that was back in Isaiah 58 to make sure he made the point. He's after our freedom. This is not a small issue for God. This is a mission statement for the Messiah to come and bring liberty to those of us who are in captivity of sin. The first thing that jumps out at me in this passage in verse 18 is this purpose statement of the anointing Upon him. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, I want to I make a couple of implications as we walk throughout this series that, that we need to dwell on some of these. The Bible speaks strongly in categories. Sometimes we don't take the time to think through what are the implications of him saying that. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. He's anointed in order to proclaim a message. And here be the first implication I want us to be able to meditate on. Freedom requires a particular person with particular power. Freedom in our lives requires a particular person with particular power. And if you just turn back one page here, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, mighty man, points to Christ in a unique way. It says, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier, there's another one coming. He's got a power that I don't have. He's a particular person with a particular power. He is mightier than I, is coming. 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. A particular mighty person with particular power has got to bring the freedom to our lives. And and we're going to see next week and next weeks after that why this message continues beyond Jesus' life into the life of the church. To proclaim good news to the poor. That's what this mission statement was to do. To proclaim good news to the poor. So now I'm learning that freedom has a particular message attached to it. In order to see the liberty of the captives and the freedom for the oppressed, for the blinded eyes to see, in order for those things to happen, it's the gospel that's going to have to accomplish it. It's a specific message. Freedom has a specific message attached to it. Everybody knows this passage, John chapter 8, verse 31. Actually, they only know verse 32. It says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. So you don't need to be a Christian to know that verse, right? That's out there floating around all over the place. That's quoted all the times. And you're going to know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And it's quoted completely removed from its context. As though the truth is knowing the real facts about a situation. That's how it's quoted. I'm not sure knowing the real facts about a situation set anybody free. I mean, in my imagination, I could be enslaved to what your thoughts are of me. And I I obsess, you know, I leave here after every Saturday. Just drive home consumed with what people thought of me today. And, And if I really knew what you thought of me today, would that necessarily make it better? It might make it worse, right? I'm going to know the truth and I'm going to get buried in, oh my gosh, they really do think that way. Uh, that's where my heart would go. So that's not the truth that the Bible's talking about. We're going to find in the Bible the truth is a person. <clears throat> the truth is the gospel. And in the context of John, if you abide in my word, there's the message. If you abide in my word, this is not some carte blanche, everybody who knows the truth can be free. No, no. Only those who know the truth of the message that Jesus Christ brought can be free the way the Bible's talking about being free. It's a particular message that brings freedom. You are truly my disciple. So you, you need to be a disciple to be free. You need to follow Christ. You have to be committed to Him and His ways in order to experience this kind of freedom. And if you, if you want to just turn a screw in your life and do some self-help, you don't need to know Christ for that. But if we want to know what Jesus was out to accomplish to really make us free, we have to know Him and we have to know His gospel in our lives. So implication number two. If you're going to be free, it will involve knowing and believing the right thing. Hold on to that because you and I will never escape that statement. If... If, everybody hold on to this, because I I tell you right now, and I hope this is not true for any of us here, but it is very possible that we will teach through a series, conclude a series, and some will stay every bit as much in their jail cell afterwards as when we began. And that's tragic. Because the Bible says if, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. So if I stay in my jail cell, That says something. See, there is truth that has to be known. If you're going to be free, it will involve knowing and believing the right thing. Now, on the other side of that, 
if knowing and believing the right thing produces freedom, what does knowing and believing the wrong thing produce? It produces the bars that are all around you. It produces the, the shackles on your feet. It produces the captivity that you and I exist in. And we'll talk more about that next week. And this is a gospel for the poor. Who are the poor in Scripture? The poor in Scripture, only those who don't have some money. They are those. But those poor highlight a, a certain quality about themselves that the Bible addresses. It highlights the quality of those who know they have a need. That's who the poor are in Scripture. See, Revelation slams those who don't realize they have a need. It says, because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's what I think. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So you can have a lot of money and be poor. Did you know that? But the poor can be those who have a lot of money but know they have a need that exceeds their money. It exceeds their talent. It exceeds their name. It exceeds their power. They have a need in their life that God is going to have to somehow be the source to meeting that need. That's a poor person. And the Gospel's for the poor. Because if you don't know that that's you, you'll never listen for the Gospel. And you won't respond to it. This Gospel brings liberty to the captives. That's a great image. There's captives. There are people who have chains around their legs and they never venture far from their issue. Here's their issue. Here's their personality. Here's their struggle. Here's that thought process that dominates their mind and they have a leash on it and they never venture far. I heard somebody pray this morning a great prayer in our prayer time before the service. Praying about not asking God for longer leashes. That's too much. Too much Christianity is... is you know, I'm still shackled to this thing. I just, I just got a longer chain that I live on now. That's not freedom either. Freedom is I'm free to roam, and when I make my steps, the chain doesn't rattle behind me. Let me know at some point you're going to go as far as you can go because I'm in control of you. That's the freedom God's after. Recovering of sight to the blind. See, freedom involves seeing. Freedom involves light. We're going to see that next week. Bondage involves darkness and deceit. And what Jesus came to do was to set us free from that. Much of life's captivity is produced out of a failure to see the truth. We don't see the truth correctly, and therefore we live in captivity to our issues. And I'll put a couple of passages there that I'll, I'll let you peruse on your own. Ephesians chapter 4, Acts chapter 26. The last thing it says here is to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is the mission statement of Jesus. He said, I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The other translations say to set free those who are downtrodden. Those who have been walked on by life. That's who Jesus came. And you may feel that way. I know there have been points in my life where I have felt that way. That life has walked all over me. Ken Hughes says, the root idea of oppressed is broken in pieces, or shattered, or crushed. Jesus comes to those squashed by life's circumstances, who can see no way out, who find living itself in oppression, and He gives them freedom. Listen, can you understand? This is what Jesus said He came to do. This is not a mission God is interested in failing at. 
He absolutely is concerned about, are you and I living in the freedom for which He set us free? It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Are we living in that? And listen, the Bible's not out of touch. It's not as though the Bible is psychologically ignorant. It's not as though human behavior got discovered 2,000 years after the Bible was written. There's no way the Bible could have possibly addressed some of these things. There's nothing new under the sun. It's not as though God was was writing some thoughts down. It was scattered. He couldn't quite get his handle on, on freedom and overcoming patterns of sin and control in our lives. But he was really waiting for the day that Sigmund Freud would figure it out and, and, and we could borrow some ideas from him. Because God knew that he was giving us an incomplete document. It really wouldn't do what it said it would do. We needed Freud. Or, in today's setting, we needed brain scan equipment. See, because brain scan equipment let us figure out how the neurons fire and serotonin and all the different drugs and the influence and where. Listen, the God of the universe spoke this word. Do, do you think he understood how neurons fire in the brain? Listen, unfortunately, in America, in the church today, this Bible is being thrown on a shelf while we get mesmerized by listening to people tell us what our, our brain scan said. Now, you know, do you know that makes... Be careful, I'll say this. It... it I'm not going to say it makes God this way, but it makes Paul a moron. It makes the writers of this Bible idiots. Because, see, they didn't say that somewhere way off in the future when man's technology improves, then you can be free. The Bible told the people in the first century they could be free. And they didn't have anybody psychoanalyzing them. There were no support groups. There was no 12-step programs. There was no brain scans going on, but they could be free, and they had the same issues you and I had. But did the Bible really mean it or not? Is there something sufficient in this word? Or have you and I become so comfortable with other ideas that we have invalidated this and we simply don't believe it anymore? We won't let the Bible be the Bible. We won't let it be the final word on my condition and my life. I have found other reasons for why I am the way I am that the Bible doesn't seem to address the same way, and I'm going with those. I want to touch this topic on another day, but verse 19. Why did God do this? Why the Messiah? Why does He come this way? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why does God bring liberty? Why does He come with this mighty armada of power to liberate us. Why does He come do that? Because in God is this grace of God that He does for His reasons, for His own namesake, graciously toward us. Not because we've earned it. We'll address that later on. But God's freedom is a declaration of His grace towards us. It's a demonstration of His grace in our lives. And today what I want us to, to close with is just analyzing for a moment how are we going to respond to the message, to the truth that we're going to hear in the next few weeks? How are we going to respond? How do we respond today? Listen, Luke chapter 4, the greatest preacher of all time, preaches without question an incredibly great message with incredibly good news. 
It could not be better communicated than it was. And listen to how the response went. Verse 22. Nall spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over in the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which they, the town, their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's an interesting response to the greatest preacher of all time with a great message to set you free, isn't it? There's a real danger that, that we grow too familiar with the Jesus of our own making. That's what their problem was. The Jesus of their making was the son of Joseph. Wait a minute, he's... He's the carpenter's kid from down the street. And that was enough reason for them not to cross that bridge into who he really was and to embrace who he really was, that he was God come to earth to set them free. That's what they just heard him say. But what they chose to believe was the Jesus of their own making. Setting before us today, is a message that the Son of God came for your freedom and for mine. And we have an opportunity to respond to Him. And we could either respond like these guys responded. The Bible says Jesus did little miracles, little works of power because of their unbelief. The very things He said He came to do were, listen, were not done in their midst because of their unbelief. Now I want you to think about who you're going to be as you face the realities of issues that you've struggled with. Get them in front of you right now. Personality issues. Controlling relationships. The fear of man. Insecurities. Jealousy. Pride. Now, how are you going to face that issue in the next few weeks? You can respond like the Galileans. Or you can respond like that other lady that we read about several weeks ago. The woman with the 12-year issue of blood. And when she heard about Jesus and who he was, she didn't come running up to him and say, Hey, you're the carpenter's son. What's up with you thinking you can do such great things? She made a strategic pressing through the crowd so that she could fight to touch this Jesus. Because she knew, if I could just touch him, he would set me free. And what's interesting, 
this poor woman, she'd been to every doctor. She'd spent her money on everybody she could think of that would help her. How many of you guys know what that's like? You have an issue in your life. You've spent and spent and spent. You've been to this doctor, that doctor, this one and that one. I want to be like this woman here who fights her way through the crowdedness of my life to touch the deliverer who was sent for my freedom and yours. And we're going to pray together for each other in just a moment. Let me give you some wise, wise words from Mr. Ryle about how we listen to the truth. It is vain to conceal from ourselves that there are thousands of persons in Christian churches in little better state of mind than our Lord's hearers at Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it while they listen. They do not dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin. And I would add, a lack of freedom. Let us often examine ourselves on this important point. Let us see what practical effect is produced on our hearts and lives by the preaching which we profess to like. Does it lead us to true repentance towards God and lively faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ? Does it excite us to weekly efforts to cease from sin and to resist the devil? These are the fruits which sermons ought to produce if they are really doing us good. Without such fruit, a mere barren admiration is utterly worthless. It is no proof of grace. It will save no soul. Let's stand up together. Lord, let this time right now a time where your spirit roams throughout this room, exposing the very depths of our hearts to your gracious care. Lord, would you introduce us again to the God leaning toward us, face toward us, creatively thinking toward our lives, how in new and meaningful ways you might lavish grace upon us. Lord, thank you for this passage that informs us that we too live in this year of your favor. You're here this morning, I think we can say it this way, to do us a favor. And specifically, you want to do us a favor in the area of our life that quite honestly, we're sick of it too. But we're sick of being controlled we're sick of shedding tears, Lord. We're sick of frustration. We're sick of being afraid of people. Lord, we're sick of our laziness that's held us in a place where we've not been able to proceed in areas of our lives for years. We're sick of saying yes to the patterns of sin that have plagued us and have taken and robbed us of the sweetness of fellowship with You and knowing You more. 
We're sick of having to face the loved ones that are in our lives because we sinned against them again and again and again. Lord, we're sick of being reminded of the losses that are in our lives because relationships are broken. Finances have been ruined. Lord, if we won't mask these things, but we'll be honest, we're sick of being controlled. Lord, would you move in our hearts right now? Or would you ask us individually the question, do you believe that I can set you free? Or for some here, it's been a lot longer than 12 years. For some, it's been 20. It's been 30 years. It's been a lifetime of being controlled. Today, Lord, rescue us from our familiarness with a Jesus of our own making. Somehow, a Jesus sitting on the sidelines offering band-aids to our deep wounds. Lord, rescue us from that. Let us see you. You are an invader. You are a conqueror. You are a king flying a flag, coming with an army. You see the walls around our lives and you are declaring war on them because in your heart is a compassion and a burden and a passion for us to experience joy that you said nothing, nothing could steal from us. That's what you're about. Lord, as we prayed last week, and Danny had a word for us, that there would be a storm, a wind that would blow through our lives that that we couldn't protect ourselves from. Oh, Lord. Don't let us stay protected in these categories any longer. Lord, we don't want to be bound to these things anymore. God, we don't want the storyline of our life to be constantly interrupted because some controlling element barges in and steals our momentum and steals our joy and steals our relationships and steals our usefulness in Your kingdom. What we're asking You to do is start this morning with the power that You brought when You were anointed by the Holy Spirit. Because there's one coming, John said, who is mightier than I. And He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you begin to blow with your wind, the wind of the Spirit. The storm of your Spirit begin to blow through this place in our lives. God, begin to knock things over in our lives. God, blow the windows out in our lives. Let there be nothing that we're going to do to keep you out from the categories that we've been enslaved to for too long. Lord, we're not going to run and hide anymore. Lord, there's no evacuation order being given for this storm. There's no storm shutters being put up. Blow with your wind. The wind of your Spirit. And the proclamation of your truth. Lord, I believe, I believe those two components are completely sufficient for every issue of bondage in this room this morning. The wind of your Spirit and the proclamation of your truth. We don't need anything else but those things active in our lives. I ask everybody to sit down just so I can make you stand up.
Last week, Danny gave us the opportunity to set the table in our own hearts for the days ahead. And maybe last week you were a little caught off guard. But what I'm going to ask you to do this morning, for some, freedom is going to be about declaring war. You're going to have to declare war on an issue in your life, on a category in your life. You're going to have to declare war on it. So what I'm going to ask you to do, and and, and by standing in just a moment, what you're going to also do is you're going to draw attention to the fact that you have an issue. And with all of our eyes open and all of our covenant group members staring at us, we're going to stand up right in front of them. And covenant groups meet this week. And I hope all the covenant group leaders will ask, why did you stand? Did you stand? What's going on in your life? What's controlling your life that you want God to deal with? And you can bring it out into the light. Expose it to the power of God, the truth of God. Humble yourself. Receive prayer, support, encouragement biblically. For you to experience freedom in the area that you need to experience it in. So what I want to ask you to do right now is if there's an area in your life that's a controlling element in your life, I want you to stand up this morning and to do so to declare war on that issue. That we're trusting in July, you're going to see a mighty move of the Spirit of God in your life. Stand up if that's you this morning. And if it's not you, please remain seated. It'd be much better for you to say, you know what? Uh, you know what we don't want to do? We don't want to put God in an opportunity to be glorious, and then we're really not interested in Him being glorious. We're not interested in Him coming into our lives and doing some serious renovation. So if we're really not there, or, or if there's perhaps not an issue that's popping into our mind right now, then, then let's remain seated. All right, let's pray together. Lord, in a few days... There will be this great celebration, fireworks, festivities, red, white, and blue. Celebrating the declaration of independence. Lord, when that day comes this week and all of its fanfare, and every time we hear July 4th weekend, July 4th weekend, Lord, remind us of the freedom that you sailed across the ocean of our sin to accomplish. Remind us, Lord. And remind us of the issues that have stood in the way of that freedom that you have set us free to experience. Remind us and prompt us in that moment, Lord, to begin to walk in faith, to begin to appropriate truth, to begin to go to war against those issues in our lives. For Lord, in a very short time period, we're asking to see serious desolation We want to see ruins scattered in our lives. Where once there was a stronghold, once there was a struggle, once there was a mighty fortress that an enemy had built, now we walk through towns full of rubble. And what we once were in these categories, we are no more to the glory of the King who has conquered us. Make us a glorious demonstration of the triumph of Your grace. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. Amen.
Just to let everyone know, there is a wedding here this afternoon, so there's going to be a lot of preparation going on here at the local church in this building. So if we could clear out more quickly than we usually do, that would be very helpful for them. Thank you.